Johannes Trithemius, abbot of St. James of Würzburg, formerly of Spanheim, to his Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim. Health and Love. Your work, most renowned Agrippa, entitled Of Occult Philosophy, which you have sent by this bearer to me to be examined, with how much pleasure I received it, no mortal tongue can express, nor the pen of any write. I wondered at your more than common learning, that you, being so young, should penetrate into such secrets as have been hidden from most learned men, and not only clearly and truly, but also properly and elegantly set them forth. Whence first I give you thanks for your good will to me, and if I shall ever be able, I shall return you thanks to the utmost of my power. Your work, which no learned man can sufficiently commend, I approve of. Now that you may proceed toward higher things, as you have begun, and not suffer such excellent parts of wit to be idle, I do with as much earnestness as I can advise, entreat, and beseech you, that you would exercise yourself in laboring after better things, and demonstrate the light of true wisdom to the ignorant, according as you yourself are divinely enlightened. Neither let the consideration of idle, vain fellows withdraw you from your purpose. I say of them, of whom it is said, the weary ox treads hard. Whereas no man to the judgment of the wise can be truly learned, who is sworn to the rudiments of one only faculty. But God has gifted you with a large and sublime wit, not that you should imitate oxen, but birds. Neither think it sufficient that you stay about particulars, but bend your mind confidently to universals. For by so much, the more learned any one is thought, by how much fewer things he is ignorant of. Moreover, your wit is fully apt to all things, and to be rationally employed not in a few or low things, but many and more sublime. Yet this one rule I advise you to observe, that you communicate vulgar secrets to vulgar friends, but higher and secret to higher and secret friends only. Give hay to an ox, sugar to a parrot only. Understand my meaning, lest you be trod under the oxen's feet, as oftentimes it falls out. Farewell, my happy friend, and if it lie in my power to serve you, command me, and according to your pleasure it shall be done without delay. Also, let our friendship increase daily. Write often to me, and send me some of your labors, I earnestly pray you. Again, farewell. From our monastery in Würzburg, this eighth day of April, in the year 1510. Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, 
and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Sometime between 1506 and 1509, a young Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa visited the renowned and possibly infamous Johannes Trithemius in Würzburg. At that time, Trithemius was the abbot of St. James Abbey, a Benedictine monastery dating back to the 12th century. The abbot was a learned scholar, and he had already developed a reputation that, has, that had caused him some trouble. Just a few years earlier, he had been forced to resign from his position as the abbot of Sponheim Abbey because of his reputation as a magician and a cultist. Würzburg was an ancient city even in the early 16th century. Originally settled in the Bronze Age, possibly thousands of years before, they went through a number of changes before becoming the seat of a Merovingian duke and then eventually Christianized in the 7th century. By the 16th century, Würzburg was part of the Prince Bishopric of Würzburg in the Holy Roman Empire, ruled over by the Prince Bishop Lorenz von Bibra. Lorenz was popular and well-respected. He was a humanist and a Renaissance man who would eventually meet Martin Luther and even sought to influence reforms to the Catholic Church. It was by Lorenz's request that Trithemius had come to St. James. But let us turn back to the main character of our story. Agrippa was in his early 20s at the time, and he was working on a project that he was excited to share with the abbot. You can imagine the scene. A young, eager Agrippa and his older mentor, perhaps sitting next to a fireplace with glasses of brandy or strong lager, deep in conversation about the most esoteric of topics. Did they speak in German, or did they converse in Latin as the language of academics and scholars? What books did Agrippa and Trithemius have available to them? What amazing works had they discussed in the past? They spoke about chemistry, magic, Kabbalah, and things cloaked in secrecy, about hidden sciences and arts, and that most mysterious of sciences, magic. They spoke about why magic, the most vital science of all, was so reviled and rejected by theologians and the Catholic Church. Why was it condemned and forbidden? And why had nobody stepped forward to vindicate this sacred and sublime discipline? In 1509, Agrippa sent the manuscript for his project to Trithemius along with a letter. In that letter, he recounted their conversations from his earlier visit and discussed his work. Trithemius was known for vastly increasing the libraries of the abbeys he led. In Sponheim, he had increased their book collection from 50 volumes to around 2,000. And this was in an age when books had just recently started to become generally available. In Agrippa's letter, the young man listed some of the scholars they had discussed and held in high regard. Roger Bacon Robert Anglicus, Pietro de Bono, Albertus Magnus, Andaldus de Villanova, Giorgio Anselmi, Picatrix the Spaniard, and Cecco de Scoli. Agrippa was presenting his mentor 
with a manuscript of De Occulta Philosophia Libri Tres, a book that would change the world. He wrote that he considered it his most worthy work. It was a massive tome. That early manuscript was probably three quarters the size of the final work we all know today. It covered topics ranging from the natural world to the divine mind, from medicine to astronomy to magic to astrology. This book possibly contained Agrippa's entire philosophy and worldview, aspects of his life that had probably been heavily influenced by Trithemius. But why was this book so influential? Why was it so notorious? Why was it copied, translated, plagiarized, and mentioned in both hushed tones and popular literature up through the 19th century, if not later? And more importantly, how did a young man of just 22 years manage to write these hundreds, hundreds of pages that historians, magicians, and occultists continue to obsess over these 500 years later? Welcome to the first episode in a series that will be exploring the content, message, and ongoing influence of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's magnum opus, De Occulta Philosophia Libri Tres, better known in the modern world as three books of occult philosophy. Join me as I talk to experts, translators, historians, and magicians to unravel the secret of this book of secrets as we figure out not only where this important book came from, but why it had such a lasting impact on the world. If we want to understand the three books of occult philosophy, we first need to take a look at the world in which Agrippa lived. We will start by looking at the Holy Roman Empire, where Agrippa was born and spent a good chunk of his life, and then examine a few key historical topics that are very relevant to Agrippa and occult philosophy. The Renaissance, the Reformation, and the birth of modern science. First, the Holy Roman Empire. The period of time we're looking at is, going, is covered mainly by the reigns of three different Holy Roman Emperors. First is Frederick III, who reigned from 1440 to 1493, Next, Maximilian I, who reigned from 1493 to 1519. And finally, Charles V, who reigned from 1519 to 1556. By Agrippa's time, the Holy Roman Empire was a mess. Imperial authority was weak and poorly executed, with the real power in the empire in the governments of territorial states and independent cities. And there were a lot of those. The Holy Roman Empire was composed of hundreds of duchies, bishoprics, counties, margraviates, and independent cities. There were even a few republics, and of course, the very important electorates. Though its borders tended to shift, in general, the Holy Roman Empire during Agrippa's life included what we know today as Germany, Poland, Switzerland, parts of France, Austria, and northern Italy. Now, one became the Holy Roman Emperor by first being elected King of the Romans by the seven prince electors of the empire, none of whom lived in or near Rome. 
Once an individual was elected king of the Romans, it was usually only a matter of time before he was coronated by the Pope, which would officially make him the Holy Roman Emperor. So Frederick III was the Holy Roman Emperor from 1440 to 1493, and his long reign was seen as one that was extremely ineffectual at addressing many of the problems the empire faced. His son, Maximilian I, assumed the throne after Frederick's death in 1493. Maximilian's arrival on the throne was greeted with excitement and anticipation. So Agrippa served under Maximilian I a couple times, first as secretary and then as a soldier, at one point even becoming a knight. So during the reign of Maximilian I in the first part of the 16th century, three really big important issues dominated the Holy Roman Empire. First, the rise of the Austrian house of Habsburgs. Second, an urgent need for reforming the empire's governing institutions. And third, the Protestant Reformation. So the first and third issues end up being important elements in the story of occult philosophy. So we will be taking a look at those. After Maximilian I's death, his grandson succeeded him as Holy Roman Emperor in 1519 and became Emperor Charles V. He was already King Charles I of Spain, and as the head of the House of Habsburgs, he ruled over a vast territory that included the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, Spain, Burgundy, Sicily, Naples, and even the Spanish colonies in the Americas. Charles V was ambitious and intelligent. He picked up a number of languages over the period of his reign and supposedly once quipped, I speak Latin to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. Okay, now let's talk about the Renaissance, starting with the Italian Renaissance. The Italian Renaissance, or at least the Italian Renaissance with which we are concerned, began roughly during the lifetime of Cosimo de' Medici, a great patron of the arts in Florence during the 15th century. Cosimo established a new Platonic Academy in Florence in 1445, commissioned the first full translation of Plato's works into Latin, and was a great supporter of Marsilio Ficino. I've discussed this period of the Renaissance many times before on the podcast with, with a number of different guests, and I will make sure that there are links to some of those earlier episodes in the show notes. Ficino, along with Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, were both superstars of the Italian Renaissance and were huge influences on Agrippa. Both of them died during the last decade of the 15th century when Agrippa was still a teenager. Amazing works of art, philosophy, and science came out of this period. It brought us such visionaries as Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Machiavelli, Boccaccio, Raphael, and many more. Even more importantly, the influence of the Italian Renaissance was felt across Europe, and in the late 15th century, the Northern Renaissance was beginning to blossom north of the Alps. However, the Italian Renaissance didn't last forever. In 1527, Emperor Charles V invaded the Papal States in central Italy after Pope Clement VII teamed up with the French, who were Charles's arch-nemeses. In the aftermath of this invasion, mutinous troops from the army of the Holy Roman Empire, upset at not getting paid, sacked Rome. Churches, monasteries, and palaces were looted and destroyed. 
This tragic event, known today as the Sack of Rome, is often said to have been the end of the Italian Renaissance. Next, we need to look at the Reformation. So between the time of the manuscript of the occult philosophy that Trithemius received and the finished version of occult philosophy being published, Western Christianity experienced perhaps its most significant change of the past millennium, the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, a month and a half after Agrippa's 31st birthday, Martin Luther made his 95 theses known. This was the beginning of of a huge wave of changes for the Christian world. Now, looking back at the Reformation after 500 years, it kind of looks like there were just two religions in 16th century Europe, Catholic and Protestant. But this really wasn't so. The Protestants were fractured and divided, and there were two leaders who came to the forefront, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Both of their branches of Protestantism were powerful. They were both religious, they were both political. The governing classes tend to like Lutheranism because it freed them from papal interference. Meanwhile, Calvinism upended the political order and made laymen more important than the priests. Across the aisle from the Protestants were some of the great humanist figures of the Northern Renaissance, such as the Dutch philosopher and Augustinian monk Erasmus of Rotterdam. Agrippa had a lot of opinions about Erasmus and Luther, and he actually um, corresponded with Erasmus. So most importantly, the Reformation set both the Protestants and the eventual Catholic Counter-Reformation in a position where strict Christianity seemed to demand the censure of the imaginary and the rejection of the culture of the phantasmic age of the Renaissance. This would result in radical change in Europe's cultural imagination and one that would have a dire impact on the reception and ongoing influence of occult philosophy. We will cover this topic in greater detail in a later episode of this series. While the Habsburgs were coming to power and the Renaissance and Reformation developed side by side, another important development was taking place in Europe, the birth of modern science. Nicholas Copernicus was born in 1473, just 13 years before Agrippa, and died in 1543, about eight years after him. De Revolutionobis Orbium Colestium, or On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, was Copernicus's masterpiece. It was published, unfortunately, after Agrippa's death, so our main character never had a chance to see this book. However, this book began an intellectual revolution, which is arguably longer and more impactful than any other in the history of humankind. This incredibly significant shift will become important when we discuss the lasting impact of Agrippa's work. Hopefully, this review of the state of the Western world during Agrippa's time will help you put in his work in context as we proceed in our deep dive into Agrippa's occult philosophy. A couple years ago, I teamed up with Douglas Batchelor of the What Magic Is This podcast to create two podcast episodes exploring Agrippa's work. Doug and I both share a deep appreciation for Agrippa's contributions to Western esotericism and the occult. Here's Doug speaking about the importance of three books of occult philosophy. Well, it was the book. It was the book that 
put into one place a whole overarching schema for magic itself and not so much how to do magic because Agrippa leaves some of those bits out but when it was was finally released it it just changed everything it was the document that people could point to and say this is the occult and this is this is magic there's something that happens uh, particularly when occultists talk about Agrippa's three books where they'll say it's it's like the bible of of magic and I actually don't agree with that at all. I think if there is a better comparison that can be had, uh, I think it could relate to something like uh, St. Augustine's The City of God. And if people are unaware of, of this book, I'll just give a very short summary. But it was, it was about 14 books, and they were written in the, I believe, the 5th century. And what Augustine does in these books is that he basically lays out what what good and evil is, uh, what people should do as far as how they live their lives. And in this respect, it was how people should live their lives in service to God. And everything from government organizations should be in service of religion and how people get their knowledge should be from a belief in God first and a, and a Christian God specifically. But what this did, and people don't realize this, and it's a bit of a pity that this book isn't taught more than it is, The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, is that for a thousand years, for a thousand years, this was the cornerstone of Western thought before the Enlightenment. And it's tough for us to think of a time because of since the Enlightenment, we have our ideas of we get our knowledge not from belief, but our our belief from knowledge. So a thousand years, this book was how people saw the world and lived their lives as a service to God. So the reason I bring this up as the book that I compare three books to is that for better or worse, we are living in the shadow of Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. For anybody that is interested in the occult, it has such an overarching uh, theses that Agrippa himself almost single-handedly, although we might talk about how he had a bit of help, but he he based his magic and his understandings of the occult on a Neoplatonic, Kabbalistic division of, of three worlds, which would be the elementary, the celestial, and the religious, that since it was published was basically what most people viewed as being magic which is really kind of crazy because Agrippa being as smart as he was and as crafty as he was that was the thing that people as I mentioned earlier could just say this is the occult which has its downsides as well but it also has its upsides um, but for the most part whether whether you don't follow Agrippa or not you have to acknowledge that it is Agrippa's world. And uh, particularly with the promulgation of, of so let's say, lodge-based magic, things like uh, the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, who, through a combination of taking from Agrippa, but also Francis Barrett, crafted what they saw the occult as, which became the idea of how modern magic is practiced now. 
but we forget that um, Agrippa was very much of his time, and uh, the things that he did are so much Agrippa that I think nowadays we, we kind of have to take a step back and, and see uh, the context in which how Agrippa came to these conclusions and what his influences were. And so these modern translations that we're starting to get of the original Latin into, into English are really quite helpful, particularly uh, Eric Perdue's version of the three books of occult philosophy, where you can, you can see exactly where Agrippa took his notes from and how he crafted this, this model of how he saw uh, the occult. And uh, there's... There's things that occur with within the three books of occult philosophy. Like one of the one of the major ones is that he he basically reframes all of ritual magic as a quest for divine truths through religious exercises. Um, and a lot of people think that this is is magic proper, which is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, people would have recognized the three books of occult philosophy when it when it came out, particularly people who had practiced magic uh, and who were operant. They would have recognized some of the elements, particularly from things like um, the magic from the high middle ages. Uh, but this whole concept, the Kabbalistic Neoplatonic concept was very new and quite groundbreaking. And, uh, and since then, this idea of you know, all ritual magic being a quest for divine truths is one that a lot of people still think is the at ultimate point of magic. As you can see, occult philosophy seems like one of those books that everybody interested in Western esotericism should want to read or at least check out. Fortunately for us today, there are three different English translations available. The first translation is the oldest. It was translated by somebody named J.F., in 1651. There's still some debate about who this JF is. Some people think it was somebody named John Freak. Uh, this edition is available online. I will make sure that there are links in all the show notes of the series. But if you're looking for for a version of JF's translation that is easier to read and follow along with, you are looking for Donald Tyson's edition. He took the JF translation, edited it, uh, and annotated it, and it was published by Llewellyn in the early 90s and continues to be in print. It's usually available as a very, very large single-volume black book. Translation number two came out in 2020. It was a translation by Paul Summers Young and was published by Black Letter Press. It's available in three nicely-sized cloth-bound volumes. And finally, translation number three... Uh, is by Eric Perdue, and it was published in 2021 by Inner Traditions. It is also available in three cloth-bound volumes. I have a full review of both the Paul Summers Young and Eric Perdue translations on the Arnomancy website. There will be a link to that review in the show notes, and also a link to where you can purchase the Perdue translation. So let's talk a little bit about this book. Since this episode is supposed to be an introduction, we should get into uh, its contents, at least an overview. Occult Philosophy is a big book. It is three books, in fact, and altogether they total something over 600 pages, typically. The first book is usually called The Natural World. 
This book uh, includes a number of really important topics, such as Agrippa's definition of magic, a discussion of the classical elements and their qualities, um, a description of occult correspondences, and how divine and celestial bodies are reflected in the natural world. This part of the book is kind of uh, at the core of the occult philosophy, so it's fairly important. This book is also filled with fantastical tales of strange animals and plants, magic stones and creatures. In fact, book one of occult philosophy, because of these fantastical tales, can be a real challenge for the modern reader. To better understand its importance, I went to Eric Perdue, whose translation of this monumental work was published, as I said earlier, by Inner Traditions in 2021. In addition to his obvious experience with Agrippa, Eric has studied metaphysics and the occult and has practiced magic and astrology for more than 30 years, with a particular focus on practical folk and astrological magic. Through his lectures and writings on traditional astrology and talismanic magic, he has been a notable voice on the subjects of medieval astrology, traditional magical systems, and, of course, the legacy of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Most importantly, he defines what magic is in the what second chapter, which almost no magic book does. Yeah, it, it's it's hard for me to describe for people to people how to approach it, because I mean, not everybody who buys magical books really reads reads them all the way through to begin with. For non Agrippa books, <laughs> um, some people just don't really approach things that way. But I think if you're the type of person who really wants to develop that sort of spiritual worldview, then you know, Agrippa just lays it out just systematically, you know, yeah, ignore the chameleon, ignore the fish. But, you know, he he, he talks, you know, he has a, this amazing description of, of the qualities of the elements that really no one else has described that I could find as well as him. He, you know, like I said, describes the logic of planetary rulerships. He, you know, he describes um, dreams, you know, prophetic dreams and things like that. All, all these like foundational things that every magician has to know are in that first book. I mean, we're all using natural things in ceremonies. There is much more to explore in book one, including material on passions, spirits, frenzy, and one of my favorites, fascination. We will be exploring these topics in detail in an upcoming episode. The second book of occult philosophy is titled The Celestial World. This book covers numbers, mathematics, and astrology. It includes material on spirits, the planets, the fixed stars, the celestial spheres. It goes into detail on correspondences between numbers, planets, the planes of reality, gods, spirits, angels, and demons. One of the things that I find fascinating about book two is this huge emphasis on the importance of math and number. In fact, it opens with, this. The disciplines of mathematics and the like are so necessary for magic that it is professed that without them, everyone will lose their way, their work will be frustrated, and they will achieve few desired effects. Here is Eric Perdue again speaking about the importance of numbers in Agrippa's work. Basically, the number is the foundation for reality to Agrippa. That is the way that astro astrology works from number. Alphabets work are based on mathematical mathematical ratios and things like that. There's liturgical numbers for different spirits and planets, things like that. So it's it's the underlying framework, and the math itself can also describe you know certain 
parts of reality, even pre-modern uh, and Pythagorean, you know, type of, of mathematics. But I think I think to Agrippa, the most important thing was the astrology, because the astrology is, is math, basically. One of the questions that came to mind was he makes a, a throwaway statement that numbers are formal in well, in the JF translation, he says formal, which is a correct translation. But if you say the word formal, it kind of, I don't know, brings to mind a tuxedo or something. What, but what they mean is that is that numbers are part of the realm of the platonic forms. Finally, the third book of occult philosophy is titled The Divine World. This book covers the nature of the human soul and discusses our place in the cosmos. It lists hierarchies of gods, spirits, and demons, discusses the importance of ritual purity and secrecy, and contains Agrippa's take on the Kabbalah. When I discussed this book with Eric Perdue, he talked to me about one of the chapters in book three that had a huge impact on him, and I think you should probably hear this. So here's Eric again. You know, it might be a boring chapter to a lot of people, but one of the ones that that fascinated me the most was this chapter on the three parts of the soul, because it was just so elegantly written. And it really describes this, you know, that chain of being that Ficino talks about a lot. It really made me kind of imagine that the chain actually having you know, like a literal chain with links to it and how you have the top part of one link connecting to the bottom part of the link above it. And the three parts of the soul have that sort of connection to them. So for instance, you know, if mind is the top part of the soul, well, your mind is actually touching the bottom part of the next level above you. For some reason, I, I, I dwelled on that chapter a long time. It really spoke to me. I, I didn't didn't expect to. It's a purely philosophical uh, chapter. Now that we've had a 30,000-foot look at occult philosophy, let's talk about what we're going to be doing with the rest of this podcast series. In this episode, we just covered the basics. We did some historical background. We looked at sort of an overview of the three books, but soon, but we're going to be getting into a deep dive on a number of topics. In one episode, we're going to discuss Agrippa's various sources for occult philosophy. We're also going to spend an episode talking about the inner senses and the world of fantasy. We're going to be talking about fascination, binding, and the body in occult philosophy. Uh, we're also going to do a deep dive into prophecy, dreams, and ritual. And of course, you know that we are going to be spending some time talking about Agrippa's magic squares and mathematics in Agrippa's occult philosophy. I also have plans to spend uh, one or more episodes going into Agrippa's approach to planetary magic, including an exploration of the planetary intelligences, which are a class of spirit that show up in Agrippa and only a few other places. So that's going to be a really interesting exploration. And then finally, we're going to talk about the occult philosophy's lasting legacy and influence. Where did it go and what became of it and where is it now? Before we wrap up this episode, I want to share one more bit from Eric Perdue. I asked him for advice for modern readers of Agrippa. What should they look for and how should they proceed reading this important book? Here's what he had to say. I think rather than how, I think why. <laughs> uh, the issue with modern metaphysics, I think, is that there are a lot of recipe books out there, a lot of books on technique and not a lot of books on what things are. And in our modern worldview, I mean, all of us are 
pretty much raised in a materialistic scientific worldview. That's most of us were taught that. And that certainly has a reality to it. But when you're approaching something like magic or astrology, there is going to be a disconnect. And many of us spend many years or a lifetime, you know, there's a little bug in the back of your head that tells you that it's bullshit. And even if you know that it works and, and we've all had those moments, I think, and where Agrippa comes is as important is that even though some of the particulars of the book are, you know, unbelievable. I mean, you know, we know that there's no fish that will turn a ship to stone by touching it. We know that lions don't eat apes to cure a headache um, and things like that. I think we know that at least people look at these and they're like, okay, well, this is just, you know, archaic nonsense, but there's a lesson there. I, I think there's a lesson, especially with the fish story, because that's, that's also magical contagion. But the thing is, is it helps get you in this, in this kind of uh, mindset to teach you how to think differently that in a non-materialistic way in a, in a, you know, to kind of put yourself into a world that spirits are objectively real as opposed to just figments of your imagination. And that, cause that's the world that Agrippa lived in. And, you know, the, one of the examples I always think about is like with astrology that, you know, pe- some people will dismiss astrology automatically by saying, well, we now know that the earth isn't the center of the universe and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you look up at the sky, that's certainly what it looks like. And these, the astrological chart describes that. And when you're approaching magic from someone like Agrippa's point of view, you're, doing it as a person who is having actually these, these these real experiences. And this book, I think, does a really good job in help helping you place that in a, in a, in a I think, in a coherent way. I guess that's the right word, coherent way. Uh, I can't even say it. Coherent way. Um, coherence is not easy to say. <laughs> um, so that's why I think it's important. Um, not, not that you have to agree with the grip on every on every point because I certainly don't. But it helped me at the very least, it helped help me ask the right questions and get you started on a certain way of thinking in a certain line of inquiry. You know, as as uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, the question the, the old question is are spirits are the spirits real or are they part of your mind? Well the, the answer is both, right? And Agrippa helps you articulate that. This series of episodes about occult philosophy will most likely last until summer. My Patreon supporters will be receiving each episode a week before the rest of the world, along with bonus materials, such as full interviews, a glimpse at works in progress, and the opportunity to suggest further topics for our occult philosophy deep dive. If you enjoy these episodes and want to help support their development, you can help out by sharing this podcast with a friend. Let your weird wizard buddies and witch pals know that we have embarked on this journey and invite them to join us. And if you want to contribute monetarily, you can go to arnamancy.com slash support and find a number of options. Until next time, friends, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing magic. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. 